Listener production. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool, and welcome to The Good Oil. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, you should be by now, but if you're not, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and the real stuff, which is exactly the aim of our podcast. We're bringing you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts, the people who know what's going on, and the people who make things happen. Now, Today's guest is someone who really knows what's going on and has made it happen over and over and over again. This is going to be a fantastic conversation. Adam Schwab has been a lawyer and a journo, but is now best known for being the co-founder and CEO of the business that's these days at least known as Luxury Escapes. And of course, he is the host of the podcast From Zero on Listener. So make sure you check that one out as well. Adam, welcome to The Good Oil. Thanks for having me, Scott. Great to be here. Mate, I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. We've been talking about having you on, on the podcast. I really appreciate you joining us. Mate, uh, let's, let's start with now and then we'll work backwards. Um, what's it been like trying to run a travel business during a couple of years of COVID? Oh, I think the default is everybody thinks it's the, this is the worst thing ever. Uh, but but there's, there's, I think, the, like anything, there's, there's what I think it's the, the Chinese that have crisis opportunity or Japanese is, is the same word. Um, and in a way, we, we sort of looked at it that way, but... I think that the main worry with any, and, and travel's one sector that was heavily impacted by COVID, it certainly wasn't the only one, uh, hospitality, there's plenty of others that were highly impacted. But I think the thing, we tra- we, we, thing with, with us anyway is it really changes your expectations. So instead of having to make X million EBITDA, suddenly it's really a cash flow thing. So if you, if, as long as you're cash flow and, and, you're, and you, as long as you're solvent, essentially, and you, you're going to remain solvent, which we were pretty confident of probably from... March, April 2020, we were pretty confident of sailing through or getting through. Or be, we didn't think it would last as long as it did. But as long as you're confident of maintaining solvency, it's, it basically you just lower the expectations. Instead of making X million, you just want to try and reduce the losses. And, and comes a question of how, how much do you invest ahead of the curve versus how much do you do you let things play out and, and, and buckle down. And we were pretty aggressive. Uh, most others in the travel sector weren't, but we were pretty aggressive with hiring and, and the like. And it's probably paid off in the long run. But there were a couple of uh, iffy moments, but overall, we, we were we were pretty comfortable. Man, I want to get back to that, but I do want to take you all the way back now. Uh, Adam Schwab, as a young bloke, decides he wants to pursue a career in law. What takes you to law as as a as a, as a career, as a qualification, as a, as a calling? Uh, how do you become a lawyer, mate? In, the, in those very early yeah. days, I'd love to say it was a great love of, of jurisprudence, <laughs> but ultimately, I think probably ninety five percent of people who do law do law because they get get a, get a mark that's high enough and they don't want to waste it and they don't want to do medicine medicine that's essentially what it comes down to and I ask the same question to, to a lot of people who are lawyers and and I really get the same answer you get a <laughs> get a 98 99 TR and you kind of you, you feel you have to mm-hmm. um, I actually had a cousin who was a cousin and an uncle who were both lawyers so I actually okay. wanted to be a lawyer not because I really knew what they did yeah. but uh, and certainly corporate law I didn't know what they did but but also and I think to sort of answer a question you haven't asked yet, but like the question is, are you glad you spent five years doing law and a couple of years as a lawyer? Mm. I think the answer for most lawyers is yes when you ask that question. You get a great grounding uh, and you learn, forget the legal stuff you learn, which is pretty powerful, so you don't get bullied. If anybody's having a legal letter, which doesn't happen very often, you can't just tear it up, check it out. Um, but I think that the key thing you learn as a lawyer is precision and, and doing okay. things well. So well, I was an article clerk at the Court Grads now at a firm called Freels, which isn't called Freels anymore. And we had to, I had to prepare folders for employment lawyers or litigators or M&A lawyers. And, you know, if you get one page wrong in that folder that the QC or the senior lawyer is going to read, then all hell breaks loose. So you have to be, you have to get a right. hundred things perfect. From the, and this is, okay. 
you could call it largely secretarial work, which is itself a really hard job. But you basically have to be, if you get anything wrong, it's, it's, it's panic station. So you've got to get things right. And outside law and perhaps accountancy, and there's a few other areas, you just don't get that kind of precision uh, in really anything. So you learn, you've just got to get stuff right and potentially too right. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, overall, five years study, two years practice, but, but don't regret it. Mm, nice one. And then, mate, I, I first came across your name and your work as a, as a finance journo. Um, the, the, the transition there, I guess, I mean, the idea, I'm, I'm going I'm to make some grand statements here and you can tell me how badly wrong I am. But, but the idea of being a, a, a relatively, you know, forensic journo in terms of your ability to cut through the BS uh, feels exactly like the sort of thing you would expect coming from a law background for all of those things you've just talked about and, and the actual process of going through law itself. So I guess a uh, twofold question, mate, why give up law for journalism and then why finance journalism? What was it that, that kind of dragged you down that path? I reckon we actually may have been in some shows together back in the day, Scott. I <laughs> Probably. Uh, Skype is the days, but uh, obviously yeah, you were would have been far bigger yeah. name than me and, and still are. But no, no. So uh, <laughs> funny, funny enough, the, um, the path was a bit more murky, so... Uh, did a couple of years of law and then it, my best mate from school, a guy called Jeremy, wanted, he was working at ANZ, he wanted to do something for himself and he's a pretty convincing guy. So he said, let's, let's do a bit. This is before the days where side hustles became ubiquitous. This is where yeah, right, entre- right. being an entrepreneur is like Christmas skate. So it wasn't particularly well uh, a well-trodden path. This is sort of 2004. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we start, actually started a, a backpacker apartments business, a business we had very little capital we could mm-hmm. start. And we, we did that uh, and we turned into a corporate apartments business. But while we were doing that in sort of 05, 06, I had heaps, it wasn't a hugely labour-intensive business. Um, but so we, we had lots of time, lots of spare time. And I'm used to working as a lawyer, so I didn't know his day. So yeah, this is like five hours a day. You know what to do with yourself. Yeah, right, right, very right. much so. So we, we had plenty of time. And I, I used to read this little sort of thing called Crikey back then. This is Stephen Maines. Mm-hmm. You may have heard of yep. it a bit more recently with, with Lachlan Murdoch suing, suing them. But... Um, <laughs> So I used to I used to read Crikey, and there was an article. Uh, there was a whole thing with Steve Barsley. This is fifteen years ago. Steve Barsley got in a bit of trouble, yep. and yep. I, I sent an, 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 just a random um, email to the editor. I don't know why, but saying, "Why don't you run about this?" It wasn't Peter Farris, who was the legal guy, wrote about this. Anyway, the editor comes back to me and says, "What Peter can't? What on you?" I said, "All right." So I gave it a try, and so we had this <laughs> apartments business that was our main gig. And on the side, I started just writing some articles, unpaid, for this thing called Crikey, and then sort of went from there. So I've written an article for pretty much every publication in Australia since. But that's that Crikey's been smart company in my main sort of go to, and I sort of stumbled across business stuff, and I probably like yourself, just kind of like it. It's kind of fun, and uh, and I've probably written fifteen hundred articles in a book since then, but uh, most of them unpaid. But uh, it's kind of a nice a nice thing to just do on the side, and and nothing I do for sort of any great compensation but but it's kind of fun mate i want to get back to the the book in a second um that that business the the, the backpacker apartments business i i'm curious i'm always i'm always curious for people who leave corporate jobs or jobs in general and go and take a flyer on a business because it kind of i think most of us at some point have gone you know what i should do that i for, for what it's worth mate i'll hit you up for some money later and i'll, I'll start a, an irish pub and barrel but until until but until we have that conversation um i'm not gonna leave my job right i just i don't necessarily have the the, the extra bit it takes to kind of go okay i'm going to step into the unknown here and i think that's you know so more more people than not would say i'd love to start this business but never quite get around to it now you're a young bloke i suppose but you're a lawyer you're in you're in a career path that offers in theory you know, very, very good money, to almost or insanely good money if you go all the way up the, up the tree. And you've gone, yeah, no, I'm going to do this instead. Can, can you talk me through that in terms of the, the, the motivation, the thinking, the, the fear and opportunity? How do you kind of, how do you make that decision at that point? 
Yeah, it's a great question. It happens a lot more now. Back in 04, it didn't happen very often. Uh, this is pre-Zuckerberg Spiegel. Wow. <laughs> Must doing all that much. Um, yeah, yeah. So this, this is back when it just wasn't so cool to be an entrepreneur and there weren't the start mates, the antlers, the white combinators, all that kind of stuff. There wasn't C five series A. It just didn't didn't exist then all this stuff. But Jez was really great at pushing me. So Jez is my was my mate who who just had the the idea of the original business. I think I had or I, I saw and copied. But it was Jez's idea to really push it and go hard. And that's why so many businesses are great to have two founders and that you have complementary skills. And, and my skill was super operational. Jez is a really visionary guy and super risk taking. So really complementary skill sets. Uh, in terms of why, and I was, if you go back to 04, I took a leave of 04, I took a leave of absence from Freehill. So the risk was pretty minimal. Oh, nice. uh, yeah. I had no, no kids, no house, no mortgage. I was 24. So compared to if I was to do it now with a couple of kids and a big more, it's, it's very different. So everybody's different in terms of risk profile. There's, a, there's lots of great businesses started by 40 to 50 year olds, like some McDonald's. And, and there's plenty of businesses that were saying, I think Walmart's, I think Sam Walton was in his role in his 40. So uh, there's plenty, there's no reason if anybody listening is, is 45, 50, 60, you can't start a business. But certainly if you're under 30, no kids, no mortgages, there's no better time to start. Uh, and you just, just, just the opportunity cost is a lot lower. And for us, we had a tiny opportunity cost. This is 0405. I was on 50 grand a year. Our goal was just to match what we were getting in our corporate jobs. It wasn't that high. So to get to 50K a year, it wasn't that hard. So we did a couple of pilot. We ran what's called a beta. So essentially we ran a couple of apartments that were profitable. We thought, well, can we get to 30 or 40 or 50, which we did. And we just timed that the amount we were making with a bit of a margin of safety. And so in a sense, it wasn't that risky. Uh, it just, you know, it's like kind of looked risky, but it really wasn't. We were well hedged. Yeah, I, I like that. I think it's I think it's interesting the, the idea of replacing. Oh, the leave absence thing—that's that's fantastic. And I, I'm also mindful, as you've said a couple of times already. O four doesn't feel like that long ago when you're of a certain age, but uh, it, you know, kind of it was a lifetime ago. We think about the, the, what's changed since, right? In terms of everything, uh, entrepreneurship more broadly, but even the, the basics of technology and everything else. I mean, those were the dark, dark days—not quite pre-internet, but but not that far into that kind of age. And so, so much has changed over over that period of time. Uh, let, I want to get back to the business thing in a second, but I do want to ask you about Pigs at the Trough, mate. The, the book you wrote. Um, about the it was Australia's decade of corporate greed, I think you called it. Um, is there is there a sequel in, in the mix? Have, have things changed? I'm I, I'm thinking about I'm thinking about Adam Schwab the Journo and wondering you know in in some parallel universe you're you're absolutely on nuts about the banking royal commission and about the, the stuff that's happened before and since that. Um, so maybe again just a, as a as a separate aside. How do you look at Australian business at the moment? You, you're you're a core part of it. You're doing a spectacular job. And we'll get on to that in a second, but. Uh, has anything changed? I mean, you know, was it, is it, maybe, is, is, it always, is it ever the case and it's never going to change anyway? Are there things that could or should happen? How do you kind of look at the Australian business community and go, here's where we're at and, and, and here's what's happened since the book or maybe not? Yeah, no, I haven't been asked that really at all. People ask about the second book, but in terms of what's changed, I think what really did change was uh, non-binding remuneration reports. I think that's, that was a really big difference. So I wrote the book over that period of court, 05 to 08, 09, to cover the pre-GFC and, and GFC. And, and I used to write a lot to Crikey at the time about just excess, excessive executive remuneration. And there was everywhere. You had Phil Green at Babcock. You had the Macquarie guys. You had, and Macquarie really changed our remuneration. I still pay a lot, but it's very linked to, to um, LTI. So I think what's changed a lot is Shareholders have, have a non-binding vote. And I think Peter Stello brought that in, which is a fantastic. I don't think anybody thought it would be as effective as it has been. And it's just just the naming and shaming has been white. So even though <laughs> the actual REM, <laughs> matters, right? the REM vote is irrelevant because you get two strikes. Well, no one ever spills a board, but just the fact that you've had two strikes itself is so powerful. So you really just don't see it that much anymore. And there's a bit of controversy of Alan Joyce's pay, but 
he got a couple of million bucks last year. We see 25, 30 in the, in the mid 2000s. And we see, I remember you talk about Qantas. I think that the head of HR for Qantas got paid four or five million bucks. You know, like this is 15 years ago. This is the head of HR. Alan Joyce getting half of that. So, so we talk about Joyce. He's sort of getting a, 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 a and Olivia, who's sort of number two there, got 1.3. So compared to, Back then, the pay has been massively tempered. They'll say these people don't get paid a lot, which and, and you can argue too much. But compared to what we saw back in the sort of mid two thousands, it's a lot less. And we also had back then a lot of terrible companies paying a lot, which you don't really see anymore as well. So what the Macqu- likes of Macquarie are doing now is linking REM to sort of ten year LTIs. So you sort of if the share price gets smashed five years later, you lose that. So I think a lot of stuff has been fixed. It has been a bit about in the last couple of years we've seen. I'm not just, I, I was writing very few articles about businesses sort of call it poorly performing or, or dudding shareholders. It'd be old one or two, but for probably four or five years, there's very little. I've probably written four or five in the last six months um, and a bit on just some grossly overvalued companies. That's a bit different. Uh, so, yeah, I think things had changed. I don't think we'll get back to those days, because of the trough days, I don't think, but we have seen the last couple of years, there has been a little bit of ex- excess creeping back in. As you see with bubbles, it's, it's just sort of inevitable. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. Mate, let, let's go to your story then, because this is, this is really what we want to talk about. You go from, from the backpacker accommodation and office, uh, office apartments through to effectively or eventually now running luxury escapes. On the way through, um, you go to a very, very early on some of the big opportunities that I think you, I, I will assume you saw and kind of capitalized on, whether they were local or global or both. Deals.com.au, probably the first one that really catapulted you to, to, to well-known business mogul status or entrepreneur status at least. Uh, and then... Uh, and then I, what I love about the business this was a business called Aussie Commerce, now called Luxury Escapes, and it's kind of it's changed and morphed over time. And what I what I think is fantastic and fascinating about it is just you know pivot is an overused word, right? And you haven't really pivoted because it's kind of still the same rough area. It's the e-commerce, it's the benefits of scale and online and marketing, all the stuff you do really well. Um, but but you know the business is, is dramatically changed. You you have sold off bits of your business, you've taken on bits of other business. Um, uh, the catch group kind of transaction in particular, where you kind of exchanged assets to kind of focus on each what you did best and did most. And yet that was kind of where you started. So the business you now have is almost you know you've, you've kind of got rid of the original business, which most founders find it really hard to do <coughs> excuse me can you tell me a bit about that part of the process mate so maybe just start with with deals.com.au take us back in time if you would to how you looked around and went you know what we can do even better and here's where it's going to be and here's why i'm the guy to make it work yeah we, we actually really did pivot a number of times and you're right it's an overused word but uh so we pivoted <laughs> but you actually have that's what i mean i don't, I don't yeah. mean in a critical way everyone no, talks about the pivot as if this thing this thing failed so i changed and we call it a pivot right it's like well we had to just stay in business you guys on the reverse you've, you've literally chased the bigger opportunity at, e- at each turn yeah and part of that's capital uh and pretty much all our businesses have been pretty capital-like businesses but certainly the first because we had no money so we started a Backpack apartment <laughs> business because we needed yeah. six grand to furnish an apartment. So we sort of went from there to uh, to essentially deals. Like, well, there's actually business in between because uh, we started a, a food uh, or actually a restaurant booking business. Um, that became a food takeaway business. It became part of Menu Log eventually. So we did a deal with Gabby and Hezzy from the Catch Group, as you mentioned, that we joined up with our business called Eat Now, which was a cracking business run by Hezzy and Jason and Guy called Matt Dyer and Nathan Airy. And we just went along for the ride with those guys. They sold to menu. Old menu have sold for almost a billion dollars. So we got a free carry from we had a, frankly, not very good business in that space and sold it to those guys who, who did well. And that was always a bit of a side hustle to our main hustle, which became deals.com.au. So 
essentially, so we had this apartments business. Uh, we knew it was not a non-scalable business. If we wanted to set up an apartment, we were, ter- we were literally putting together the furniture. We were taking deliveries. We were showing through the new guests. It was corporate by then, but it was still a, a fair bit of hands-on work. So we knew, and it's not really national. It's certainly not internationally scalable. Uh, so we, we thought we wanted to look for something better, more scalable. And we actually had bought and sold some apartments as part of that business. I had a million bucks. We'd windfalled to in our bank accounts. I mean, just 500 grand each. And we wanted to do something more scalable. So we're just sort of biding our time like we did with the first business and happened to see, uh, or Jez actually happened to see the, this Groupon business in the States, which was the, the quickest business to ever hit a billion dollars in sales. It eventually became worth 1.26 billion. It's now less valuable than us. So it's been quite a, quite a fall from grace for Groupon. But um, they, and they didn't pivot, which I think was really the problem. So they stayed on that. Well, I tried. I just couldn't do it. They stayed essentially on the core business, which was a marketing services business for small business. So if you look at the, the original deals business, and it was, we'd work with restaurants, day spas, takeaway joints, whatever it is, and travel a bit as well. And we'd essentially perform a marketing. So, so we'd have this big database of customers and we'd also market. And we'd, um, we'd, we'd go to the, the vendor and say, give us this cracking deal so that people get, people get interested. The aim is to look, to either lose money or break even off the deal and you get customers through the door to try. If you're really good, they'll come back. Call it free customer acquisition or close to it. And if they're terrible, if you're terrible, they won't come back, but don't be terrible. That, that was essentially the, the, the principle. Unfortunately, some businesses are terrible. So some are great and some aren't. So problem with the local businesses, there's two problems. One is that business issue that not everybody, we had no control over the end user experience. So if the restaurant did an incredible job, the, the customer would be happy and go back to the restaurant. If the restaurant did a terrible job, they go, hey, deals, you guys are crooks. We want a refund. So that... It, it's not a great model in that respect unless you have really trustworthy counterparties and don't pay in advance, which we did at the time. The other problem with the, with the, the local business is you've got a, what's called a small, poor unit of oils and small basket size. So if we're only making 50 bucks in sales at a 20% margin to getting 10 bucks a pop and it's costing you 100 bucks to get a customer, that's not a great... That's not a great uh, set of yeah. economics. So great for the vendor, not great for you guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so great for the, but the vendors didn't always really sort of understand. Some some did, and some are super smart and still work with us to this day. Uh, but a lot of, a lot didn't. But we, what we realised pretty quickly was the travel part of that business was a really good business. So the travel part was 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 much better unit economics, and that you sell a two thousand dollar holiday package, not a fifty dollar massage, and it'd be the same amount of work, same cost of acquisition, so much much more profitable. Uh, and the other benefit of travel is you're dealing with hotels, often five-star, four, five, six-star hotels, who not only a hospitality business who care about the customer, but there's also something called TripAdvisor and Booking.com and lots of review sites. So if they do a bad job, they get slammed. So hotels naturally don't want to do a bad job for themselves and for the customer and for the fact they can get slated on these reviews. Uh, by the same token, we benefit from that because a customer has a great experience at a hotel, goes to the uh, goes to the Ritz-Carlton Dubai, has a great experience. They go, oh, how good is my luxury escapes? Ritz-Carlton's done all the work. We've done a great <laughs> job marketing for them. We haven't serviced <laughs> the customer. So uh, so in, in a sense, win. yeah, it's yeah. A, it becomes a luxury beauty of luxury escapes and or deals in the travel space was it's a win, win, win. Customer wins, gets a great discount. Vendor wins because they make lots of money. We win because we sit in, sit in the middle, take a small margin and effectively grease the wheels for a transaction that wouldn't have happened. And the beauty of Luxury Escapes and the travel part of deals and kudos and scoop on is 93, 94, 95, depends on where the destination is, percent of our customers weren't going onto the hotel or to, or the tour till we told them about it. So we are creating genuine incremental demand like no other, no, no other, no one else on earth. So most of you think of booking and Expedia and all these travel sites you probably use, flightings. They tend to farm existing demand to a great degree. So you want to go to Bali, you go to booking.com, 
oh, I've heard of, uh, I've heard of the Grand Hyatt. I'll say, I'll go say that. But if we send a, a communication out, communication out for Grand Hyatt, you may not have heard of, well, we, we may send a communication out for the Andaz or, or whatever it is. And you may not have heard of that hotel, uh, and you'll buy it because LuxuryScape has told you because we've done great filming and have told you about it. We've written great content and you trust us to not screw you over because that's what we do because people won't come back. So, uh, it creates that great win, 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 uh, which, which is really hard to find in business. So that's, that's kind of why we love the business so much. Yeah, that's awesome. Mate, can you turn me back again just, just as you make that transition? So uh, I think you've done a spectacular job explaining the, the value and the unit economics, which is a phrase that our listeners really need to get their heads around because that is quite often the difference between a, an okay business and a great business. You get that unit economics piece right and it can absolutely fly. Um, you know, the deals business for a while was working remarkably well, I assume, at least in revenue terms. As you say, Groupon took off and then all the other businesses that were similar economics, similar uh, category, similar structure all did the same because it just created this amazing groundswell. And then at some point, it hasn't done quite so much. There isn't a natural, it was novel and it was new and it was different and everyone tried it and then kind of, you know, just ebbs away. As you say, you know, if you're if you're Woolies, you're going to sell groceries in one form or another and you're going to try to do a better job of that. And if the business starts to struggle, you're going to try and sell more groceries. Very few businesses kind of, you know, maybe the conglomerates, West Farmers or Sol Pats are businesses that would say, okay, well, we're not anything. We're, 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 a, we're a holding company. We do whatever we want. And you guys have said, okay, well, we used to do this, you know, deals.com.au business. And then we kind of morphed and changed and, and developed. Was it was it a sense of just simply recognizing those economics and saying, hey, let's double down over here? Or was it a sense of revenue's kind of ebbing away over here, let's find something else? How, how did that, as, as you go through that transition over what I assume is months, maybe a couple of years, as, do, you, do you struggle with, I don't want to let this go because this is what I know and this is what I've done? Or is it literally a case of, hey, I don't care, it's a, a dollar's a dollar, I'll make it wherever. And then and then the business economics and the and the category interest by, by consumers and customers. Can you just take me through that that transition as well? There's a couple of things in there that's, that are interesting. I think the pivot point or the, the change that look at all the great businesses of the last 30, 40, 50 years, they've all done it. So Apple was a computer business, became a, a, a iMac business, became, or with Apple II to iMac to, to iPod to iPhone to, so that, that's the greatest pivot of all time. And then, and the great pivot within the pivot is the re, Apple retail store. Uh, so, and we've got a retail store opening up, which we're pretty, pretty excited about. Uh, and you can look at, look at any number of businesses, the same thing. Uh, McDonald's pivoted to being a property business essentially. Uh, in Australia, become a cafe bit. There's always great business pivot many times. You sort of see what works and you sort of move across to that. It's pretty rare you have the same product over 100 years. I think every business has changed significantly. Uh, if you look at us specifically, we saw the travel business, again, having that better economics, customers loved it, uh, hotels loved it. We started doing more and more, but we didn't, we probably should have been more brutal in not, so Essentially, we, we're frankly running three businesses in one. We had the travel business, our sort of golden child. We had our local business, which was still going pretty well. We had a product business, which was great revenue, but we weren't really sure how profitable it was. So we had three businesses in one. And Catch of the Day actually had the same. They also had three in one. Problem is we, we actually looked at IPO back in 2016, 17, and the market said, we love this travel thing. We're not really sure about this local thing. And the product thing, well, that's pretty competitive. I'm not sure we love that. And they basically come back to us when you travel only. So we... We, we sort of took it, and it investors are generally pretty smart, even though they don't know your business that well. They're, they're pretty smart, and, and, and they were actually right. And that's, the brokers are saying the same stuff, and all the analysts are saying the same stuff. So we ended up doing a deal with Cash Guys in 2017 where we bought that travel business. They bought our, our homewares and fashion business, later sold to West Farmers, the whole thing. And we merged our local business together to get more scale. And within, we've actually sort of brought that back in-house as a travel affiliate, essentially. But uh, so we, we we took too long to go travel only, and it was actually a really great lesson. That, and you and you you hear this lesson say, focus on what you do well, ignore what you do badly. The problem is you have, you have a year of pain, you have a year of dis synergies essentially. So you, you hear this word synergy. So when 
Synergies is that great term of a great excuse for a merger doesn't work, but there are synergies in, in principle exist. So you have two businesses, put them together, you got you don't need two CFOs, you don't need two CTOs, you don't need two head offices, all those things that you can sort of get rid of when you put two businesses together. Problem is when you get rid of a business, you'll you have what's called dissynergy. So we had we had a homewares business and a fashion business that maybe weren't making that much money, but we're covering a cost of these, covering a big portion of these head office costs. So we, we spun that out and our profitability dropped off because we lost all those sort of caught synergies across the three. Ultimately, it allowed us to focus on travel and two, three, four, five years later, it's we're much better off. We've got a, we had a back end, uh, effectively a platform we built ourselves that had to do everything, which was really hard. We now are travel only. We did a, but then a bunch of work rebuilding the platform over COVID, pre COVID and then over COVID even more, uh, to become travel only. So, it was a, a short-term pain for long-term gain, but something we had to do. And it, to sort of try to answer your question, it happened gradually. So we gradually saw travel becoming more and more uh, impressive a business. The other business was sort of staying stagnant and travel was just getting bigger. So we said, eventually it became so obvious that, that anyone, any idiot in our position would have seen it. We probably should have moved quicker. You sort of learn from that, but ultimately um, you sort of make your mistakes and then move on. But, but we did, the, eventually we got there in the end and we're now much more focused, much better business. It reminds me of the story of the, the Intel, uh, Andy Grove and Gordon Moore, who, who said to each other, if, if we were fired tomorrow and someone came in here, what would they do? And they said, well, we get rid of the memory chip business and focus on processes. And they said, well, well, why don't we just do that then? And it's kind of, it's kind of that story, right, of if you, can separate, if you can divorce yourself from the history and the, everything else that goes with things you think you know and say, well, actually, what business should we be running here? Where, you know, where is the value? Um, it sounds like you guys have, have found it and really found it in a, in a, in a big, big way. Um, can you talk to me about the luxury escapes business then? Let's, let's unpack it for, for our listeners. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll set it up badly and say some combination of um, a catch type business plus a trip advisor slash bookings type business, but with a really great focus. And I assume you guys would say um, with great customer acquisition and conversion. Um, how, how badly have I misstated or under, understated what you guys are doing? And, and maybe just paint, paint the picture of what the value prop is for, as you've already said, for you guys, for, for the customers and for the vendors, the, the hotels. That's a pretty good. So uh, we've actually got two businesses now in the one. Uh, we, how we look at for a customer, it, it sort of looks like the one, but we look at it as the two. So if you look at our legacy business and the new business we built over COVID, so the legacy and it all comes, it's all the same website and everything, but it's just how we look at it. So the legacy business is what we call our flash sales business that originated. And you talked about catch and and that stuff. So let's look, the best way to compare it for people listening is to think of a supermarket. So you go to a supermarket and every week at the end of the aisle they're called caps. And these, these caps have something that usually about half price. It could be barbecue shapes, half price. It could be dynamite, half price. It could be toothbrushes, half price. It's always something different. Shapes. Yep. Yeah, yep. generally funded by the suppliers. The supermarkets never never have to pay for it. But so, and that every week that changes. And that's essentially a way to really encourage someone to let's try barbecue shapes. It's really on discount. I'm going to buy four or five packets or whatever it is. Um, and and gets it's kind of like an advertising thing. And then you've got the aisles themselves, which are kind of all the rest of the stock as well as the specials, but it's the rest of the stock. Our legacy business, so the original luxury escapes that most people probably know, is is like the end of the aisle. So we would run a, a, a campaign for a, a hotel in Sydney or Bali or Thailand or, or Maldives or wherever it is, uh, and it would be 30 to 40% off. It could be 50% off, could be 30, just depending on the deal. And that could, it would usually, it would never just be a bed in a room. It would be including extras like breakfast, dinners, day spas, transfers, et cetera, et cetera. So the customer gets a discount on price and also all those inclusions you wouldn't get at flightcenterbooking.com. Uh, and it's only available to purchase for a two-week period. That's the whole so-called the end of the aisle thing. 
Uh, that's why the, that's why the hotel agrees to do it. If they were always a special, it wouldn't work. So it's only a short term special, uh, and you can travel for usually sort of a year to two years. So it's great flexibility from the back end, but you've got that short period to buy it, and it really encourages impulse purchases. And that's why ninety three percent of our customers weren't going to go there. Till we told them that. So it's that really impulse driven, discounted. So we do a couple of things with customers in that part of the business. One, we provide great curation and inspiration. So. Uh, you don't know where you want to go in Bali. Well, there's three places on Luxury Escapes. That you know they're going to be good because we've got them on the side. We, talk, we video it, we film it, we, we have all this other stuff there. It's a great way to discover as opposed to going to book.com where there's a thousand places and oh, where do I start? So it's a great curation inspiration. And obviously the other thing we do is that discounted price. So from a customer perspective, you get those two great things. And obviously from a hotel perspective, we actually make the money for a, in a, for a few ways. We won't waste too much time explaining why, but it's really that incremental very fast revenue with lots of inclusions, which are a high margin for the hotel. So it's a really great win-win for customer and for hotel, uh, for hotel there, which is great. Uh, over COVID, we, we, we realized that flash business is a really good business. The problem with that business is whilst customers love the discounts and everything, there's two problems. One is, well, a few problems. <laughs> one is that we don't have everything. So we only run 50 campaigns at one time because it's quite expensive. It takes a long time. We negotiate with a hotel for six months, potentially, sometimes a year. Uh, so we're, we're, Big teams of people working on getting production right. So we got 20 people will touch every deal that goes live. That's my deal. So it's very, and you got a limited total addressable market because you're only running two or three Bali deals at once, one or two Maldives deal at once, one Sydney deal. So as opposed to booking.com that has a thousand to buy deals, we might have one. So you just got a smaller market size. So maybe it's a couple billion dollar market size globally for us. So it's, it's not tiny, but it's not a trillion dollar market size like a booking.com. But we knew that was a really nice business, great cash flow profile. Uh, hotels love it, uh, customers love it. So we, we didn't want to kill the golden goose. That was our key business. We didn't want to completely pivot. We wanted to do a semi pivot here. So if you talk, when we talked about all our other pivots, we pivoted completely. We went backpacker apartments to corporate apartments to yes, do, do, do. And it, we yes, basically yes. just sort of eventually killed the old business or stopped running the old business and went to the new one, which is better. In this case, we didn't want to kill the flash business. It's still a great business, still very profitable, uh, growing, all that kind of stuff. But we wanted to try and solve that problem. Uh, we wanted to solve the problem of having more product without creating a paradox of choice. So what, we, what we've done and what we started doing over COVID, so this part of the reason, we go back to the original, one of your earlier questions is we, we, we didn't fire anyone, is we, we, every other travel business fired half or 80% of that staff. And we, well, we could have done that, but we said, we said, well, how can we get something else for our team to do? And we created this new business line, which we call Marketplace, which potentially is, so instead of uh, previously, if you did a search for London on the dip, you, A, we didn't even have a search function, but if we had a search function, you search for London, <laughs> you would have found maybe one deal, maybe, often right, none. Right, right. Now, if you do a search for London on Luxury Escapes, you'll see 20 or 30 things, not a thousand things like booking, but you'll see 20 or 30 things. And often you'll have, it might have a flash deal, but you'll, even our always on deals, you'll have free breakfast or a free upgrade or a free cocktail at night or all the above. Uh, so we have now a bunch of always on marketplace stuff. So this is, go back to the supermarket, this is the aisle itself. So if you walked up a supermarket and they had barbecue shapes, they had no other crackers and you just don't like barbecue shapes or you go to the, you only go to the next supermarket. We were, we were that supermarket just the barbecue shapes. So we knew, we knew we needed the Savoy's and the cheddar shapes and the other stuff. So we've built a platform that has that. Um, but in our own luxury escapes way. So we've got, We'll have, we'll get to, we want to get to about 5,000 directly connected always on offers, which are better value than anyone else. Uh, so you know you come to Luxury Escape, you get a better deal in Dubai, you get a better deal in Bali, you get a better deal in Thailand. It may not be the super, super deal, or you can always buy that. You get, you know, you've got a choice, but you don't have too much choice. And it's not just hotels. We're also doing that with tours and cruises and flights and experiences. So basically everything you want on your trip, you'll be able to buy from us. 
You can go to New York, you buy a hotel, you buy a flight, you buy your Eiffel Tower, even your, your Empire State Building tickets, you buy a Statue of Liberty tickets, you go your food tour through Harlem, you can get it, you go your Knicks tickets, you, you'll be able to buy everything, uh, which no platform really globally does. Booking might sell the hotel, uh, WebGen might sell the flights, Cloak uh, might sell the experiences, but nobody sells it all. We'll actually have it all, which is, which is pretty exciting. Mate, I love it. It does strike me, even just you know, browsing the site, and if you're listening, go to luxuryescapes.com. Uh, you can find a lot about what Adam's talking about. But you're right. Everything you've talked about, the the, the, the sense of curation, the sense of here's the, the here's the highlights, here's the stuff. And I did just literally, as you were talking, um, search for London and had a look at all the details. And it's it's beautifully photographed. There's some great details. You do feel like, okay, well, here's the, here's the things I can choose from. In a way that if you typed in London on a, on a TripAdvisor or, a, or Expedia or a booking, you get everything. It's like, well, how do I choose that? It does feel like you're being kind of shown if not the best of the best, certainly it's the best deals. And then, and then you know, you've got a, a limited number of options from which to choose, as you say, to kind of avoid that paradox of, of choice. Now, I'm curious, the, the luxury escapes part of this, um, obviously, you know, well, not so obviously, the, the, the uh, perception, the, the, the view, is that these are for higher priced, more, I won't, not exclusive, but more premium holiday experiences. How much of that was deliberate? How much of that comes from your sense of where the money might be made or the size of the market or the opportunity or the or the niche that was being not exploited? Um, wh- where does the luxury escapes part or the luxury part of the escapes uh, come from and how's that been part of the journey? Yeah, so if you go back to the original uh the original luxury. So we bought luxury escapes in 2012. So we had this deals.com.au business and then we sold travel on it. And we realized some hotels and a lot of sort of five-star hotels didn't want to be on a site called deals.com. They want to be on a travel only, beautifully curated site. Because a lot of these sites, aren't, a lot of these hotels aren't on any, we got hotels on luxury escapes that aren't on, online anyway. Uh, um, but so we wanted to be called a, a really premium, we had a lovely name and a premium environment. At the same time, and this is a, it's a two-edged sword really, because I think a lot of people think luxury escapes is just five thousand dollar a night rooms, and we 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 have hundred dollar night places as well because luxury is different things, different people. So what we want to make sure is the hotel is, is nice, of a good quality. We'll try and do our best to tell customers this is a really nice hotel, really expensive. This one, the price will actually tells you, but but we try and emphasise it that I'm happy to say that personally, hundred dollar a night place or two hundred dollar night place, uh, and I don't always, I, I very rarely will say any more than a thousand dollars. We got. Lots of customers who love staying at two, three, four, five thousand dollar night places. So we, we like to cover a broad range, not just your sort of super high end BAFA or rich listeners. We want to cover just the sort of the average everyday Australian American or, or, or Indian or Singaporean customer who wants somewhere really nice and wants to be, get really great value. So often what you'll find is somewhere on a luxury escape, it could be 200 bucks a night. You might pay 300 bucks a night at booking.com. So you're still getting a really great uh, holiday experience for, for actually less price. And some of those luxury escapes can be a bit of a sort of a knife to our back that people who probably would stay at places we sell maybe think they can't when it's actually not the case at all. Talked about the way you've come on this business journey, and I'm curious that we'll have people listening to us now who are either already entrepreneurs or think about an entrepreneurial journey, or just wanting to learn the lessons that you've learned as you've gone. Can do you reflect on a couple, uh, plenty, plenty more in the Adam Schwab story and the Luxury Escape story over over many years, I'm sure. But do you, can you reflect on a couple of opportunities to, to learn some lessons, things you wish you'd known, things you'd tell other people, um, just that, that, that very idea of, you know, maybe it's the journey itself, maybe we've been through those things, but are there things that stand out and you go, oh, I wish I'd known that, or I'm glad I learned that, or that was a pivotal point? Uh, there's a couple of lessons I always like to try and sort of um, trump out. I think a couple in the early days, you know, sort of start, people who are listening and maybe wanted to start a business, there's a couple, couple of lessons around that period. One is don't force an idea. So maybe I'll go back to our original idea, the backpacker apartment idea. 
we got the idea, we, we had friends who needed it, but we saw a real problem and we, in our everyday lives or our friends' everyday lives and, and sort out to, went out to solve it, which is the best way to start a business. If you see a problem that impacts you, try and solve that problem. Not every problem is going to be a business, incidentally, but uh, often they are. Uh, so if you see a don't, – don't quit your job and just stay at home starting writing notes in a notepad thinking you're going to start a business. That, that doesn't really work and you're going to be left with no job. Uh, by the same token, rule number two or lesson number two is once you do have that great idea – I know we talk about side hustles a lot and there's nothing wrong with a side hustle, but you really need to put everything in, uh, put some real skin in the game. Ideally, if not quit your job, pay for leave of absence, really give it a real crack. Because if you're not giving it a real crack, it's, somebody else is probably giving it a real crack and will probably eat you. So it, the rules are kind of, um, uh, what's the word, opposite, opposite to, to the same. Um, they're kind of uh, contradictory, but, but don't force an idea. But once you've got that idea, go really hard. I think the third one is, we never raised capital. We raised capital very late last year, but we never, for the first 12 years of our business, we never raised capital. Uh, and in a way, that's good because you, you obviously maintain more equity, but in a way, that's bad. So we were always super frugal, super scrounging for money, and just didn't hire as good a team as we should have early. We, we would get the odd great person, often by luck, uh, but we didn't set out. And it's really only lasted three or three years, probably, that we really said, hold on, we're We've got enough cash. We've really got to just build the absolute best team. Not money is an object because we, we always try and pay market, but we're not we're not sort of crazy sort of Silicon Valley type um, payers, but we always try and pay sort of fair market wage. Uh, but really try and find some really, really good people. If you look at our, our exec team now. It's sort of an absolute A-grade exec team that should have gone back five, six years. We had some great people, but wasn't as complete a, a team. And now we've got it's just a team of A-graders. And this is not just sort of, this is ELS today. This is going three, four, five levels of management down. So uh, we were really focused on building a great team and we just didn't do that initially. Like we knew we wanted good people, but we thought we can't afford them and let's not get them. Uh, and if you venture back to the, the VC saying, you just go do it, they don't give you a choice. So because we didn't have that VC saying, do this, do that, and you think you know better. Uh, so that's probably another thing, just, just get great people quickly. Like it's, it's the ultimate especially in a knowledge-based business, which since we are, um, it's ultimately who's got the best people wins. Mm. Mate, I, I'm, I'm going to get to our favourite questions in a second. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned people because that was going to be my last, my last question. I think one of the things that there's almost, there's a whole lot of different things going on. One is the business model, getting the business right, understanding what's going on. You've talked to that. And you've talked about the people thing. I think that's the other major part of, of successful business. And I'm curious from uh, the journey of, you know, a bloke as a young bloke, as a, as a lawyer, you're working with some people, you probably know some things you like and don't like about your co-workers and bosses and other things. Um, again, you're looking at the, the, the financial business world from the side, maybe you get some insights, but how hard is it to develop uh, and then get good at both hiring and managing people? It's a really tough one. You have an interview with somebody, you think you might know what they might be like, you try and get a reference, but every reference is a good one. Um, all of a sudden, you're someone's boss, you're like, well, geez, I, I mean, I used to take orders from the uh, yeah, from the QCs and, and now I'm having to tell this person what to do and what's reasonable, what's not, and how to get the best of them and motivate them. Um, it's a really big question, I know, but how's, how's that journey been for you, going going from you know uh, the bottom of the pile to, to the boss and having, to, having to, to get the best out of your people, treat them well, develop great culture, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I sort of went from the bottom of the pole to the boss. I was boss of a tiny business, but we, Jez and I never had anything in between. We, we sort of were, I was the most junior person for the first sort of, I was a paralegal, I was with you, I was, so I was, I was always the most junior person. So I went from that to sort of running our business. We never knew what it was like to be in the middle, which is probably not a great sort of great apprenticeship in that sense. Um, got Other things were great, but that wasn't. It's a really good question. I, ultimately, I don't know, is, I guess is the answer in terms of often, 
you know, there was a, that US Supreme Court judge, I think Brandis, who said it was had a case on pornography. And he goes, "Oh, I know it when I see it. I can't, I can't describe." And you kind of, when you see someone great, you kind of know when you see him. Like he's got that feel. And I think Scott Galloway, who's a po- another podcaster, who has a great podcast, and he just says interviews are almost completely useless. Um, certainly, referencing's great if you know someone who, and not not the bullshit reference that that here's my two references. It's always cooked. Uh, I, 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 I don't think we've ever given someone a bad reference. <laughs> this people are questionable. Exactly. That's right. And, and, and no one, and no one, and no one chooses asks you to give them a reference if they, don't, if they know you don't love them. Yeah, well, so the people yeah, exactly. who I have yeah. reference who probably shouldn't have made me a bad reference, I've still given them a good reference because <laughs> um, you kind of feel bad. But um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm very low to trust references unless I know the person separately. Mm. And I can be honest. Uh, if someone asks me, Adam, what about Johnny? Oh, uh, who I know, I'll be I'll, I'll be honest. But in terms of formal referencing, I say me. I'll, I'll always sort of tell the tell the party line, but. I think you've got to get a good. Also, it really depends on the business. And we, we consider ourselves a super entrepreneurial business, super fun, like still a day one. And we, we've got 450 staff now, but we act, we try and act like we've got 20 staff. And, and we hope we, we hope we do. So we try and hire people who fit that mold and culture. I won't hire, almost will never hire someone from a big business, like a super, an ASX 20, not, not because I don't like those businesses, but because I just know that won't be, won't be a fit. The exception being, my chief of staff, who's a superstar, was briefly at an ASX, it was a Coles briefly, but hated it and, and was at a much small business before that. So <laughs> when someone hates the business come down, that's different. Almost uh, what you want. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You can, so yeah, someone stayed there for a month and left, it's fine. But someone's been there for a year plus or two years plus at a, at a sort of big institutionalized business and hasn't left and wants to come to you. If they've left, then it's great because it's a good sign. I don't like it. And, and, and I love people who have started their own business. If you started your own business and then or left a corporate state, if the business has failed, it doesn't bother me. Uh, the fact that that's the way you're wired is great. So we'll try and fit people who fit our culture, very customer-first customer, customer, uh, customer culture, and just get shit done culture. And that's not for everyone. Uh, some people don't like that. Some people like that corporate. Like, people like working from home every day. They like that sort of corporate cubicle or being told what to do. Uh, but that's not for everyone. Even, even people on the, on the front line, if someone works for our contact center, we want you to be entrepreneur. We want you to, how can you help this customer? How can you serve this customer better? And we love promoting somebody from sort of the front line contact center to, to managing an apartment. Nothing better. Because uh, they understand us. We've we worked with someone for a number of years. So we love promoting internally because that's the best way because you've seen someone. Uh, but if we can't do that, uh, I work with a couple of great recruiters to get my execs and one really great recruiter, a guy called Darren, who's, who's, who's incredible. And he just understands how we think, understands what we want. Um, and it's very much, we're, we're hiring for personality, culture, and, and obviously smarts. You can generally learn the business, uh, but I can't teach you, I can't teach someone how to be an entrepreneur. They sort of, you either can or you can't. So we want that kind of mentality as much as we can through the business. Yeah, I've, uh, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I, I've got an Adam Schwab approved hiring policy. I've always, I've always hired for attitude and aptitude. And if you, you get those two, can they do? Are they, is it possible for them to do the job? Yes, obviously they need to be smart enough and all that kind of stuff. Do they have the aptitude we're looking for? Yes. Okay, well I can teach them almost anything as long as they've got those other two, other two skills. Mate, Tom, let's get to our, our favourite questions, the ones our, our listeners want to hear from all of our guests. Uh, the first one's a, a pretty straightforward one I stole from Barry Ritholtz of Masters in Business. Uh, what, what, are you, what are you watching and reading, mate? Are you a big reader, streamer, podcast listener? Of course, you've got your From Zero podcast, of course, that everybody should be subscribed to by now. Uh, but but what are you personally watching and reading, listening to? Obviously, apart from, from your fantastic podcast, Scott, okay. uh, I'm a, exactly. I, I love reading business books, I'm sure, like mm-hmm. yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, hard to find the time. I tend to read all the sort of, I read the sort of, all the nine papers, uh, the Oz, the Northern News Corp papers. I read Smart Company, Brikey, um, 
uh, Daily Reckoning. So I try and read a pretty big cross section of sort of business press. I read Bloomberg every day, which gets about five different emails. Uh, so I, I tend to read probably about 15 or 20 different things. Um, and I listen to probably about seven or eight podcasts. So uh, the other podcast I like is I love um, Pivot with Scott and Cara. Um, I love the, the Flux Boys. Uh, I have a great daily podcast. Um, also, what other podcasts I listen to? Uh, oh, um, uh, how I built this obviously is a, is a cracker. So they've got mostly business focus, business focus. There's no time for anything else. Of business wars is great when I can listen. So it's very much that sort of business focus stuff. These days, with that many podcasts, it's almost a full time job trying to keep in touch. I've got yeah. a million on my phone. I've got to get through. Uh, mate, exactly. obviously, obviously, you're in the travel space. You're in the e-commerce space. But what trends are you watching? What have you got your eye on? Like that's fascinating. That's interesting. Here's where this is going, uh, up, upwards or downwards. What's capturing your attention in terms of as as a business and, and kind of cultural watcher? Less so as a business, but obviously for us, the whole mobile revolution still is, is hugely impactful for us. And we're doing a lot of work up until we're doing a lot of work around how do we create a connected trip and turn the luxury escapes app into a super app of travel. That's a lot of work. That's, that's more of a, and that's not a new trend by any stretch. It's of 10 years old, but, uh, in terms of the trends I love, and this is not related to us at all. Uh, the notion of self-driving cars to me feels like one of the biggest value unlocks coming in the next 10 years. And, and, and supersonic planes, another big one, which is perfectly halving the travel time to just using better materials and, and boom's doing a great job there. So I think there's, there, those two things I really love. I, the notion that we still drive cars is completely bemusing to me. That the, the inefficiency, the death, the cost is crazy. It, it shouldn't, it absolutely shouldn't be legal. Um, and hopefully we can get there at some point. So those couple of things really excite me and I think we'll get there at some point. The Jetsons promised it, mate, and they still haven't delivered and I'm still dirty about it exactly. as well. Yeah. Uh, what, mate, we've talked a lot about entrepreneurship and, and you've been very generous with your time and your thoughts, but what advice would you give someone if there was a particular bit of advice? I've asked about lessons, so maybe it's the same question, but someone who was about to step out into a career in entrepreneurship, uh, what should they know or what do you wish you would have known as you, as you started? I think just be willing to make lots and lots of mistakes and just try stuff. And we talk, we've talked about pivoting a lot on this app, but, but just keep working and keep changing. Like I think, the, I think there's... There's so much cognitive bias. You think people try something, and, those, and, and this happens in, in when you work for business. And this is great. One of the worst memes I've got about our business is Adam said this, so we, we have to do it. Half the time, I never said I never said that. And if, anybody, if, I, if I did, like if I'm wrong, someone should say, "Well, Adam's a dickhead. Let's do something. Let's do what's right." So it's a, it's the conventional wisdom. How do you break? Like, every new business is disrupting an existing business, pretty much, unless you come up with some new fancy tech, which is still in a way disruption. So you've got to disrupt. You've got to be willing to break the status quo. Every time you start a business, everybody else says you, you're an idiot, you're a dickhead, it's not going to work. Well, every, every, every successful business, someone said that to. I'm sure they, they told Reed Hastings. Well, Reed Hastings absolutely got told he was a dickhead 100 times till he, he, he started Netflix. Included by Blockbuster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then where they end up. Uh, so every business you've, you're told you're wrong. So you, but sometimes you are wrong, but you've got to be willing to, to know hard, when right? you are and when yeah. you're not. And if you, if you can feel that every great entrepreneur is the head, head of sales, you've got to understand the customer, understand what customers want. You obviously know this with your businesses. And if you can understand what customers want and build a product, so the, the two most important roles of a founder is head of sales and head of product. Build a product and sell that product. And if you can do those two things, and then obviously hire a great team, which comes a tiny bit later. If you can do those two or three, those three things, you'll be a cracking founder, cracking executive. If you can't, and the difference between a, a founder and a, call it a hired gun CEO is the hired gun CEO doesn't need an understand product and probably less so sales and they don't understand team and building team. If you're a founder or if you're an entrepreneur, you've got to do the team stuff for sure, but you've got to do the product stuff and the sales stuff, which is what corporate execs don't need to do, which is why transplanting a corporate into a sort of founder business often doesn't work. Uh, but yeah, if you're a founder, if you can sell, if you understand product and you can build a team, you'll be a great founder, you'll be able to build a great company just to focus on those three things. 
That is cracking advice, mate. Thank you. Uh, my last of the, our favourite questions. I'm assuming you're an optimist. Most, uh, If you're going to step out and be an entrepreneur and try and build something brand new, you've got to believe that it's possible. You've got to believe that great things can be done by people who care enough and, and have a good enough idea. What are you optimistic about, Adam? I'm going to have to about most things, I think. Like it's, I'm, a, I'm a paranoid optimist, so I'm a continuous. <laughs> that is amazingly common with the answers I've been getting, by the way. It's like everyone's positive, but there are, there are the kind of optimistic pessimists or the optimistic realists or they're, they're kind of trying to outrun something and they just have to do it. But that, that go, keep going. Well, I'm a, I'm a market. I'm a market. I've been a market bear for 12 years. Um, <laughs> yeah, and when yeah. we sell travel, it's a cyclical sort of product. Yeah, so, yeah. so in a sense, yeah. my parishness contradicts, contradicts that. But but ultimately, oh, I'm generally optimistic about certainly the next couple. We've had a t- pretty tough couple of years generally. Though, clearly, interest rates are – we've got to correct a lot of terrible decisions that we made during the pandemic, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on them. But we one of the key ones, we print a lot too much money. So there's just too much excess liquidity floating around the market, which is why rates and quantitative tightening are happening. And that's what you're seeing in markets, obviously. But So there's, there's really two counter – but if you look, there's always bad news, there's always good news. Uh, and it's how you react to both that determines how you live your life. So I tend to be pretty optimistic, uh, try and be optimistic around the family and the kids and, and like, things can always go wrong. Uh, but, but there's always positive to it. There's always positive to the negative. Uh, and, and if we just focus on the positive and, and realize how lucky we are and about so much luck along the way, uh, to sort of focus on the negatives probably isn't, it, it'd be sort of selfish and, and indulgent. I love that phrase, the paranoid optimism. I think I'm going to try and uh, I'll give you credit, but I'll, I'll definitely grab that one and run with it. Mate, uh, thank you for spending your time with us. How can people find out more from you, from Luxury Escapes? How can they follow you, stay in touch, find out what's going on? Uh, jump on Twitter or LinkedIn, um, Lux underscore Schwab on Twitter, or find me on LinkedIn uh, and love to hear from you. Fantastic. Adam Schwab, CEO and co-founder of Luxury Escapes. Thank you for joining The Good Oil. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly. 